Welcome to the Peace Catalyst podcast, where we share stories to inspire, uplift, and encourage you in your peacemaking journey. I'm Becca Tyvel, and I'm joining you all from the Washington, D.C. area. And as always, I'm joined by my amazing co-host, Allie Bernison. So this week, we have an amazing conversation that we're so excited to share. We're chatting with Peter T. Coleman, professor of psychology and education at Columbia University and director of the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution. He's also the founding director of the Institute for Psychological Science and Practice and is co-executive director of Columbia University's Advanced Consortium on Cooperation, Conflict, and Complexity. Dr. Coleman is a renowned expert on constructive conflict resolution and sustainable peace. His current research focuses on conflict intelligence and systemic wisdom as meta-competencies for navigating conflict constructively across all levels, from families to companies to communities to nations, and includes projects on adaptive negotiation and mediation dynamics, cross-cultural adaptivity, optimality dynamics in conflict justice and polarization, multicultural conflict, intractable conflict, and sustainable peace. He is the author of over 100 articles and chapters and multiple books, including The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization, which we'll be talking about in our conversation with him today. This brief bio does not encapsulate all of Dr. Coleman's work and experience, but hopefully sets us up well to have this conversation with such an important leader in conflict resolution today. Wow, I'm really excited about this conversation with Dr. Coleman. I can't wait to hear what he has to say. And um, this week, wanted to share a peace quote from Martin Luther King Jr. And it says, returning hate for hate multiplies hate, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And that is hopefully very relevant, and I'm sure it's a quote that many of us have heard before. And actually, I'm going to go ahead and read a second quote by Martin Luther King Jr., because um, I think it also is relevant to our conversation today. It says, now there is a final reason I think that Jesus does love your enemies. It is this, that love has within it a redemptive power, and there is a power there that eventually transforms individuals. Well, we are so happy to have you. We're here with Dr. Peter Coleman. And to start off our conversation, would you mind sharing a bit about yourself and your journey of getting to where you are today as a conflict resolution expert and psychologist? We know that you've authored multiple books and over 100 articles and chapters on these topics. So just as a way of introduction, could you share a significant moment or a few moments maybe in your your professional career when you saw the power, efficacy, or even beauty of mediation, conflict, resolution, or something related to the two? Sure. That's, there are three or four questions in there, so you'll, you may have to remind me as we, as we go. But a quick background is I, I've had several different careers, and in the, uh, I guess in the mid-'80s, I started to work in inpatient psychiatric hospitals with uh, adolescents, which meant 12 to 28-year-old people, many of them addicted to drugs, and many of them 
had put themselves inpatient um, to reduce sentences for crimes. So it was a violent population of young people, um, <clears throat> originally in Florida. And then I had been living in New York City. So when I came back here, I continued to do that work. And that's got what got me interested in peace work. It was really working with you know, young people that had gotten into serious trouble that were either addicted or from very difficult circumstances or both. Um, and, you know, so I was in a hospital, inpatient hospital, working with them. There was a fair amount of violence that took place at the facilities that I worked at. So there were oftentimes young people that would, you know, act out, become violent, barricade themselves in a room, threaten to harm others. Um, you know, there were times when SWAT teams would be called in. But I had worked, was working as what they called the mental health associate, which is like a kind of a counselor or an, an aide for everything. And, um, and as the young people came in the unit, I just, you know, would meet them um, and sit down with them and start to hear their stories and start to connect to them. And I was probably closer in age. I was in my late 20s at that point to most of them than of other people. And so just built relationships with them um, and, and mostly through listening. And so when they would get violent, when they would barricade themselves, when it would get very tense and, you know, the police were called in or SWAT teams were on the way, I would, uh, you know, I started to just kind of knock on the door and say, it's me, this is going to turn bad. Is there any chance we can talk? <clears throat> and so I had no training in this, no idea what I was doing. I had been working as a professional actor for about 10 years. So this was a very different gig, but I, you know, had relationships with these people and I knew them and they knew me. And so oftentimes they would let me in and I would, you know, just sit down and sort of say, is there any way we can turn this around and not get, have this get worse? And, you know, and so that's how I started to get into peace work is working with a population of people that use violence, you know, pretty commonly in their life. Um, and so that's how I started. But as I said, I, I knew, I knew nothing really, you know, I had no conceptual frameworks. I had no idea of research. I just was going off my guts and, um, so I looked around and found at Columbia University, there was a program in conflict resolution. There was a, a person there named Mort Deutsch, who was an eminent scholar and theorist who had done a lot of really groundbreaking work. Um, and uh, so I, I would say, you know, some of the moments took place in that, on that unit with these young people and feeling the power of relationships and trust and listening um, even when people are really agitated, really want to be violent, you know, they're in a place where they really want to lash out. And even under those circumstances, sometimes if you have enough of a relationship with people and trust, you can, you know, listen to them and help bring that down. So those were powerful, formative experiences. And then when I went to Columbia, I met more Deutsch. I started to study this program. I was a master's student for a year and then I joined the PhD program. And, um, and started to work more and more with him. And, you know, I, my intention was to be a practitioner, a mediator, a consultant. I was trained at that point as a community mediator in New York City. Um, and I thought I would do, you know, practical things. That's what I, you know, was inclined to do. That's what I wanted to know about. 
But what I learned from Deutsch was the profound power of big ideas and science in helping ultimately influ influence and inform practice at all levels. So he, you know, even though I was, I had a very practical bent going in, what I'd learned from what he did in his life is he would, he would, you know, get an idea, do research on it, provide evidence for the value of a certain kind of approach to conflict and peace. He did, he did a lot of work. He had been in World War II. He had been a navigator flying bombing missions over Berlin. Then he saw Hiroshima and Nagasaki take place, and he came back and thought, we're in serious trouble as a, as a species because we're going to kill each other. And so he, he, his dissertation at MIT was a theoretical approach to how do you get the United Nations General Security Council, permanent members, to not compete for power and hoard information and make things worse, but to actually work together to save the earth you know, and to save our species. How do you do that? So he did a theoretical approach to that. He did empirical research on it, very kind of micro research. But ultimately, his work had profound effects at the UN, in international affairs, in teamwork and organizations, in cooperative learning in schools. It really trickled down uh, in many ways. So, so those were, you know, those are the kind of the yin and the yang of my my work in this area is I, I began as a practitioner having direct experience with the power of just listening and being in and building relationships and trust. And then when I went to the to academia, particularly with my work with Deutsch, I saw the extraordinary power of, you know, I, of important ideas and then using science to understand how those translate into practice and the conditions under which they help when they don't. And so that's been, I think, the kind of essence of my journey. The, the center I directed, center which is now called the Morton Deutsch International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution, um, is a science practice center. So it's a center whose mandate is to try to keep research and theory as close and relevant to practice and practice as informed by science as possible. Because there's a tendency in our field and most applied fields, including education and consulting, for science and practice to drift apart. Practitioners do their own thing and they do what they think works. And scientists study things that are sometimes irrelevant or at least don't communicate their relevance. And that's a problem um, for our areas because we can gain so much if we stay in conversation. So that's what our center does. So, you know, in some ways, my practical experiences, my work as a mediator and some work as a consultant, and then my academic training with Deutsch prepared me to, you know, sit in this space that where the, both communicate with one another, mm -hmm. science and practice. Thank you so much for providing all of that context. And I'm excited as we move through the conversation to hear from you um, on, yeah, what our audience can glean practically from what you have studied and are incredibly accomplished in. And I think what stands out to me, at least um, how I heard what you were saying was that there is something intuitive about resolve and resolving conflict, um, just with your experience with the youth, um, that, you know, you didn't really know what you were doing. And many of us, all, mostly all of us are not, um, experts in this field, but like, is there something that is 
in us um, that, that it's kind of intuitive to at least seek conflict resolution. Well, let me just say, I think that's the funny thing about conflict is in some ways we're all experts because we've been in conflict since we were infants, right? And our parents didn't feed us fast enough. And we were like, what's the deal? <laughs> you know. So we've been struggling with conflict and with our needs since we began. And so we all have what I call implicit theories of conflict resolution. You know, we, we shape those through our experiences in our families and our schools and communities and life and coaches and teachers and, you know, formative people that we see manage disputes. So we all have pretty strong theories. I'd grown up in a, you know, family with an alcoholic father, a lot of tension. So I, you know, saw my older brother, I saw my siblings manage that. And so it wasn't, you know, none of us are coming in um, without context or without some sense of what is good conflict resolution and what isn't. Um, but I had never had never thought about it. I'd never written about it. I'd never reflected on it. It just was kind of in my gut when I met these kids and I saw them get in trouble and thought, okay, is you know how do I help in the same way I would with a sibling or a you know some a neighbor that was struggling like this. So so yeah, I think we all have a sense of that. Part of it is coming reflecting on what that is, making sense of what our preferred strategies are, and then realizing that there are other strategies as well, and that our tendencies may not always work well. And, and so what are the options and how are there ways that we can use different strategies in different kinds of situations? And that's where my work has evolved over time is it's something we call conflict intelligence, which is just sort of reading the room and recognizing that, you know, I usually would do this, but that's not going to work here because this is a judge or a police person. And so I need to approach this very differently you know, than I would with my you know, 25 year old son. So I need to pivot and use a different strategy. And that's, I think, you know, a more advanced skill, but we all come in with some yeah. skills. Yeah, that's really, thank you so much. That's really great. And um, I love what you're saying about bridging the gap between science and practice and how to bring those together more and have it be more integrated and informed. Um, so thank you. And we're grateful to learn from all of your scientific um, research and expertise today. So thank you so much for that. Um, shifting gears a little bit to kind of zoom out um, and talk a little bit more about your recent book, The Way Out, um, of Toxic Polarization and Looking at our country today, I know that um, I recently watched your 2012 TED Talk in which you talked about politics in America and how they're more polarized today than they have been since around the end of the Civil War, and that we've become more and more polarized every year since about the early 1980s. And so I'm wondering, you know, now we're 11 years later <laughs> from 2012, um, do you think that's still the case now? And what do you think are these the underlying factors of this polarization? Because I think, you know, all most of us can see what's happening at the surface level. Um, but could you describe for our audience what do you think is happening beneath the surface? Sure. Um, so yeah, so I do think that the the trajectory continues. Um, and and it as you suggest, what the, some of the evidence suggests is that 
our political polarization in this country, we're polarized around different issues, but in terms of politics, red and blue, left and right, um, we're, we have been becoming more and more polarized in our opinions, in our feelings about the other, in our leaders inability to work in a bipartisan way and solve problems. Um, that has been becoming more acute since the you know, mid-1970s. Um, and so that continues. Um, I wrote this book. Um, it was published in 21, but I started working on it, thinking about it probably in 2018, 2019, um, because of how acutely problematic political polarization has become in our country, which means that we can't solve other critical problems, Right. Our capacity to deal with, you know, 415 million guns that we know of in this country that are relatively unregulated, our capacity to deal with climate change, with inequality, these major pathologies in our system, we our leaders can't come together, figure out practical strategies to address them because we are so suspicious of one another and our leaders just reflect that, right? It reflects the population. So it's, it's a long-term trend. Um, what that means is that there's no one cause of it. And this is part of what I try to write about in The Way Out, is that there is a constellation of things that contribute to sort of pitting groups against each other and pulling us apart. And it becomes bigger than us. It, might, it does nest in our attitudes and our tendencies, each of us individually. But it's driven by broader forces, by the algorithms that you know, send us certain information and don't send us other information, by our, our tendency to watch news that's comforting and reinforcing of our values and not reach out and try to get contrary opinions, right? We're, we're sort of hardwired to do that by where we travel, you know, we, where we choose to spend time with people like us, where we choose to live. This is we're seeing this in data more and more that red and blue Americans are physically moving away from each other, not just red, not just rural, uh, uh, rural urban divides, but within cities, right? There are red and blue pockets <laughs> within the cities that are very coherent. I think of, of all of the precincts, uh, voting precincts in the country, I think 1% are considered purple. The rest are red or blue. So we are physically sorting from each other. We hold one another in more and more of a sense of contempt. We essentialize, we oversimplify. So by many metrics, you know, the, this is a bad time and it continues to be a bad time. And, you know, Donald Trump's approach to leadership in the presidency was an accelerant that poured, you know, gasoline on that fire. Um, uh, the internet, particularly the year of, my colleague John Hyde is writing a book about the year of 2010 when things like the like button became critical to social media platforms, which meant that instead of me just telling my story to my friends, I was suddenly looking for affirmation and community from others. And that created a very different dynamic that, you know, is also pathological and largely unregulated, unfortunately, in most of the major platforms. So those are factors um, but there, you know, there are many of these factors and, you know, I want to stress that America is exceptional in this, in that our spike around political polarization is more acute and dramatic than most other developing nations or developed nations. 
Um, but I was just listening to a podcast about, you know, the, the riots in, in Brasilia um, that took place recently, mm-hmm. storming of the capital there. And the parallels there are, you know, <clears throat> extraordinary. I mean, there are differences in terms of what happened and why, why it happened, but, but the parallels are pretty extraordinary. So what I like to tell people is that this is a long-term problem. There are a variety of different sources of it. Typically, it's how those sources start to reinforce each other and they create really patterns in how we think, feel, act, behave, how our institutions organize, how our communities organize. And so there are multiple factors that are really working on us. So you can today decide, that's it, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then something breaks on the news or you look at something on Twitter or somebody says something and you get triggered and you're just right back into the us-them dynamic. It's a very hard thing. It's like an addiction. I mean, so addiction, you know, addiction specialists uh, talk about addiction as a biopsychosocial structural problem, which means that it, it starts to become in our biological system, our neurological, you know, what we, information we process and don't process. It also becomes a psychological thing, you know, meaning for us and a sense of belonging. But it's also in the structures of where we travel and the media we listen to and, and, you know, who we hang out with before and after work. And all of these things contribute to these patterns that, you know, bubble up into societal patterns. So it's, it's important to understand that this is a complicated problem. There are no simple solutions. If we, if we said tomorrow and gerrymandering, would it help? Yeah, it could probably help but it's not going to stop this runaway train, right? There are too many other factors. So we have to understand it as what we call a cloudy problem with a lot of different pieces of feeding each other, and then understand the conditions under which societies that have had those kinds of problems, how do they change? And that's what we've been doing is sort of studying societies that have gotten out, you know, Costa Rica, Botswana, Mauritius, the Scandinavian countries, New Zealand, There are places around the world that have been through really bad periods of civil war or worse, and they have found ways out. And so that's part of what we study is how do you get out of these things? And then what can each individual do to contribute to that? Hope I'm not going yeah. on too long. Sometimes I, I, you know, you press a button and I'll go. No, <laughs> so that's great. You always give no, me a time out and I'll, I'll, I'll regroup. <laughs> no, it's really great. Thank you for sharing that larger sort of context and understanding because I think that's really important for like we have to understand what's happening in order to to change and to to be productive. Yeah. So thank and, you. And so let me just say again, you know, we're all educated through the scientific paradigm, and the scientific paradigm is is more of what we think of as clock, studying clock problems, like in medicine. You know, we look, we, you know, if it's a cancer, we want to know specifically what is the cancer, what type of cancer, where is it? And then how do we fix that? How do we go in and, you know, introduce some kind of chemicals to shut that down? And that's how we think about most problem solving. And, and that's how peacemakers and peace builders tend to think about it. It's like, if only I could X, you know, and that's sometimes true, but not always. And these kinds of problems that are much more vast and complicated require a different way of thinking and a different way of working. And that's what I've been trying to communicate is what are some of the levers of change when you're dealing with fundamentally different kinds of problems? Right. So, um, yeah, with this 
next um, question shifting into, you know, how do we involve ourselves in um, the process of depolarization, um, hoping to talk more about an, uh, an article that you wrote in Time Magazine for it back in October, uh, you noted that the politically lopsided nature of current depolarization efforts in the U.S. presents a significant challenge to peace building efforts in the country. And you even mentioned that terms like empathy or bridge building may act as red flags and turnoffs for many right-leaning Americans. So uh, as a first question, do you have any thoughts regarding how bridge builders who um, can make depolarization process more open and maybe even inviting for those who identify as conservative? Yeah, it's a great question. And and yes, I think this is not just my critique, but I do think that the, the field of bridge building is usually seen as more blue and democratic with a kind of hidden agenda to change people, you know, conservatives' minds to become more democratic, right? More progressive. Um, and so the language we use, the kinds of forums that are held are all, very often lopsided. And I hear this from folks at Braver Angels and StoryCorps, you know, all, people doing good work, but really struggling to resonate with a more conservative audience. Um, you know, I think that's, you know, long been a challenge and is, is a current challenge. I think what, you know, ultimately what it will, it re- what it will require is that trusted members of conservative communities, um, you know, become the, bridge builders themselves and reach out to members of their own community. Like I think of the evangelical Christian community, which I think is 14% of American America or something like that. And I recently heard that over the last year, I think 43% of evangelical pastors of, you know, communities uh, have considered resigning because of the internal tensions in their community, the, the you know, pro-Trump, anti-Trump tensions are so profound that, you know, almost half of them are saying, I think I'm just going to get out of this, you know? And that's a crisis of institutions and leadership and, you know, spirit, meaning. And so there is a lot of pain in these organizations. I, I've been speaking to uh, the Rotary Clubs. You know, you may know this, but Rotary Clubs have a lot of, of, of a peace-building agenda. And so there have been several clubs that have reached out to me and said, our members hate each other now. <laughs> they won't talk to each other. So how do we do this internally? So I think that within more conservative groups and organizations around the country, there are, we're seeing these this kind of pain, this alienation from people that used to be our friends and neighbors and colleagues. Um, and so there is a sense of need that's coming up um, across the political spectrum, um, right and left. Um, and so it, I think part of it is it's going to require members of those communities to say, okay, what do we do? Like, how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that works for us, uh, isn't a democratic agenda or progressive agenda, but that is really about us sort of beginning to learn and tolerate uh, one another. So I think that's, you know, in general, what will need to be a critical strategy. There are good groups that are networking through more right-wing media and networking through right-wing influencers to try to engage people. But 
when these initiatives, these bridge building initiatives, again, which are well-intentioned and oftentimes well-designed, but when they're suspect to half of the country, they're they're unlikely to ever attract people, you know, other than a a handful. So it probably has to come from within Mm. their own communities. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, So one more question about um, maybe a potential barrier to efforts like depolarization and engaging in genuine dialogue across lines of difference. Um, another challenge might in having j- spaces of where genuine dialogue can occur is power, the differences in power. Um, so how do you think diverse yeah. Americans who come from different backgrounds and maybe there's um, just an unequal e- power dynamic going on, how can they come together around a common cause of not only preventing conflict and violence, but working towards a shared vision um, for what we can be as a country when these power differences exist, especially? Yeah, great question. And and oftentimes there's there's a group that I work with that works with high school students, red and blue high school students. And, and they, since their onset have said, you know, we can bring these folks, these young people together, but when you have like Boston elite young people and someone from Tennessee, from an impoverished area, even on a Zoom, their language is different. Their references are different. These kids have you know never had a vacation. These kids are flying off to Aspen. You know, it's just like it, these are different realities. And so you can bring t- people together in good spirit, but that is become a, is is a real issue, right, with this country, which is not unrelated to inequality in this country and to how many people feel profoundly left behind. And so these things can be triggering in that way. Um, Well, I would say this. I think one of the most hopeful potential initiatives that's happening right now is through um, a variety and eclectic group of what what we call national service organizations. So there are, you know, the country has Mercy Corps, it has uh, Habitat for Humanity, it has, you know, the YMCA, YWCA groups, you know, it has various groups that do volunteer programs. Sometimes they're volunteer camps, sometimes, you know, with Habitat for Humanity, it's building homes for the poor, right? What those groups do is they bring people together to help poor people and build houses, Right. And so we, we met the Rockefeller Brothers Foundation, <clears throat> brought a group of us together, it was last spring, and asked a couple of us to talk to the heads of these organizations that are doing great things, right? Habitat for Humanity, if you've ever done it, is a great space to go to because you don't know who these people are. You oftentimes have never met them before. And so you build new relationships. Well, all we were trying to do is say to them, are there ways that you can enhance the capacity to bring people together across difference and be, do that more intentionally um, and respectfully and still do what you already do, which is build houses for the poor, right? You don't want to give up your mission. That's primary. And that works. And, and it, it engages a lot of people. But in addition to that, you could do that with some kind of intentionality about how do you bring them together? How do you debrief the experience and the process, right? So you could essentially leverage what you're already doing to have some impact. I think that's a very, very promising strategy because 
There are hundreds of thousands of people that do volunteer work in this country all the time. We don't have a, ma a major national service program or a major, you know, like military out of high school program like Israel and other countries have. Um, but we do have these existing pockets that are already doing this. So what that means is that people are coming together to do things. Oftentimes they don't want to come together to like, you know, talk about politics with the other side, but they will come together to help their community in crisis or to build homes. And if they're willing to do that, maybe those experiences can intentionally support experiences of others and, and a thinking and a process around that experience that ultimately has an effect. So it's really ki kind of working with this ecosystem of volunteerism that is across the country and is part of our history, um, but leveraging it because if you're working for Habitat for Humanity, you know who has the power? It's the people that know how to use the hammer and drill. <laughs> They're the ones with all the power. I go in and say, okay, what is this thing that you've just handed me? Okay, it's a plane. So what exactly do I do with this? You know, So my PhD and my whatever else privilege is irrelevant. What's relevant is people that can do the work. And that changes the power dynamic, engages you in a different way, and starts to really help have you begin to appreciate others and what they mm. bring to these experiences. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So again, it's in some ways, it's turning the whole thing upside down, right? What the bridge building community is trying to intentionally do is intentionally bring people together to talk politics or to experience the other. And there's value in that. But in a time that is so divided as ours, when red and blue have very different value systems, or at least ex, you know, expressing very different value systems, then it might be necessary to do this differently. And one way to do that is to, you know, there's a, let me just say quickly, there's, there's a policy in Botswana that's an interesting thing to learn from. So Botswana was a Portuguese colony. It got independence about the same time as Mozambique and Angola got independence from their you know, colonial powers. Um, and immediately Mozambique and Angola burst into civil war, ethnic civil war. And Botswana looked around and thought, uh oh, <laughs> you know, the same thing is going to happen here because the same ethnic groups were forced together by the colonial powers. Now there's nothing holding us together and we could easily do that. So they, they instituted a policy. This is just like a, um, a policy for everybody that uh, um, is hired um, as teachers and engineers for the state. So I think 40% of the working population uh, work through the state, are supported somehow, you know, teachers, engineers, bus drivers, various groups. Those people, 40% of the population, are required every seven years to physically move to a different part of the country where a different ethnic group is. So you can't live all your life in one place with your tribe. You need to go live someplace else. You become, you and your family become an ambassador for others. And so it's forced this kind of physical movement and relocation and therefore connection between these different ethnic groups. And it, right today, Botswana is seen as one of the most peaceful and prosperous nations on the continent. And they think that this is to some degree due to this policy, which is inconvenient. Because imagine if I said to you today, okay, you know, next week you got to move, <laughs> you know, you got to move to Alabama or you got to move to hmm. Boston or wherever. 
you know, people would be like, whoa. <laughs> you know? But so it's not particularly always convenient and necessarily popular, but it has served a purpose in make, forcing people to experience the other, connect with each other, live with the other in ways that is transformative and has at least helped mitigate the more tribal tendencies mm. that all humans have. That makes so much sense. I mean, I feel like you even see that in classroom politics of like, you can't only sit by your friends, the teacher will like change the seating arrangement every now and again. So you're not clustered with people that you already know. It's yeah, yeah. it's interesting. Yeah. And it's so hard to do because, you know, we want to sit with people we like, or, you know, we know, or frankly, we like to sit by people that are like us, you know, and like us can be race, gender, religion, ethnicity can be a lot of different things, but that humans have, you know, this thing we call homophily, which is that we're much more comfortable with people like us than people that are very different from us. And so we sort automatically. There, there has to be some intentionality about how you mitigate that and, and mix that up. It happened at the founding uh, of Singapore uh, when the leadership said, okay, we're going to demand that people live in integrated housing and therefore go to integrated school, ethnic schools. They were coming out of a period of, of ethnic violence and they said, we got to change our policies to force people to grow up together, which will ultimately mitigate that. Singapore is a, you know, not a great example of a peaceful nation because it's more autocratic and punitive, but very high on social harmony, right? <laughs> you know, hmm. so it's both. I think there was maybe you would know this, Dr. Coleman, a similar program in Rwanda that was a government program where people were forced to live with those who had been perpetrators of violence. Um, yeah, there were. Um, yeah, Rwanda is an interesting place because there was a combination of different things that they've done. Um, and part of what is, is that they, when they tried to begin to do reparations and healing processes, they tapped back into more indigenous tribal practices, court systems, you know, local systems of healing and, and restorative justice. So they, you know, they, they basically learned that the colonial structures that were imposed on them were part of the problem and they needed to kind of back up and tap back into and, and respect local practices and policies. But in addition to that, there was a need for relocation of some type. I don't know what, I don't know if it was housing structures or if it was, employment contingent uh, um, movement, but yeah, there was a recognition of the need. I mean, again, that's a strange example because in some ways you had integrated neighborhoods where people turned on each other. And, you know, again, part of that is that it's a complicated problem and it had, you know, this, these groups had been divided and conquered, you know, by the British and, and ultimately, you know, the hate that, was allowed to fester for so long really led to this explosion. So contact with members of the other group is a, um, a moderator of violence, but it's not the only solution. There has to be other mm. elements as well. So given the broad range of micro and macro conflict drivers that are advancing polarization in the U.S., including many st structural drivers and corresponding environmental enablers, some listeners may wonder if grassroots dialogue and individual level changes are capable of stopping the slide towards conflict without broader policy changes and other 
perhaps more intrusive interventions, such as forcing people <laughs> to be together. But um, for example, it's hard to see how depolarization programs can keep pace with the increasingly siloed nature of life in the modern world. Yeah. Um, so how do you think that grassroots bridge building initiatives could work in tandem with other efforts to address conflict drivers in the U.S.? Yeah, I mean, I think the way you phrase that question is important. How do they work in tandem? And I do think they can work in tandem. I think that we we know about contact and dialogue groups and bringing people together. And this is a tool that's been around since the 1950s, since Allport wrote a book on prejudice. Gordon Allport wrote a book on prejudice and contact theory and the value of bringing groups that don't have contact together to meet each other and humanize each other. And under many conditions, that's very useful. But because of the challenges that we've talked about, the power imbalances, the suspiciousness of these kinds of processes, they're going to be limited today in the kinds of impact that they can have. So they have to be supplemented by other kinds of uh, processes. You know, there are small groups. There's there's a group um, called, our, uh, there's a report that came out called Our Common Purpose, but there have been several of these. But that's one example that is a kind of multi-level policy fund, you know, philanthropic funding um, plan for mitigating polarization. And it doesn't, it's not just like, let's bring people together to talk, which, you know, is not a bad thing, but is insufficient to this problem. It does look at politics, gerrymandering, money in politics, you know, you name it. Um, and it, it offers a constellation of things that can be done. So that's the good news is I think, you know, the last several years in this country, particularly January 6th, has really mobilized some smart, well-intentioned people to think about, okay, <laughs> we as a democracy are really on the ropes. We've been downgraded, you know, as a democracy. We really need to take seriously our own. So a lot of peace building organizations that principally worked internationally, like Search for Common Ground, over the past couple of years have said, okay, time to come, time to come home, time to do work here, time to take this seriously. Um, and, and many of these groups understand that dialogue processes, you know, contact experiences are part of that, but there has to be multiple layers, media and entertainment, uh, regulation of social media, right. And, and guardrails introduced to, onto social media, um, and, and emerging technologies that we're not even aware of, like, you know, um, so there, there has to be a, a constellation of remedies but there are good ideas that are out there that are starting mm -hmm. to gain traction. Yeah, good. and you mentioned yeah. it in the last question, so I hope this isn't a little repetitive, but um, yeah, January 6th, you know, that obviously was a significant event. We're almost exactly two years out. And so that seems to have shaken a lot of people up, as you said, to recognize that civil unrest, violence, it's here. Um, it's not something that's out there. Um, but still, I think, and I, I'll just speak for myself, when I think about practices like de-escalation and um, in the face of violence and conflict, I still picture that process at such a high level, something that you know, government officials or just high powered actors would engage in rather than something 
that is down here and attainable. So I guess, and I mean, I think it's easy with situations such as January 6th to, and I'll just speak for myself again, like I had nothing to do with that, you know? So I, and to feel like I don't have any ownership over conflict that we see in the U.S. right now. So I guess the question is, um, can you help us understand how individuals, communities can pursue these practices um, in our own spheres of influence and begin to think about them and learn the skills and tools necessary to pursue peace and even feel some sort of ownership or agency, if that's possible. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that. I I think that it's useful to think about how do you affect change of a problem like this at three levels. There is the leadership level, right? And so when the Biden administration was coming into office, the transition group contacted me through another group and said, well, you know, what do we do to depolarize America? And my recommendation was to the Biden administration was um, stay out of it and don't, um, because, you know, you're seen as the the cause of this by half the country, um, and but don't make it worse, you know. So don't use vitriol and attacks and, you know, competitive politics to make it worse. But you can't become the, the you know, the cover story of depolarization because half the country will distrust it, right? <clears throat> but there is good work happening at that level. And I want to say that, that there's hopeful things. You know, there's a group called the Select Committee, the Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress that's been around almost two years now. They are six Republicans, six Democrats that work on changing the incentive structures within Congress so that they hate each other less and are more functional, right? It's a good thing. They've been giving hundreds of recommendations to Pelosi and the leadership about how to do that. And they're not brain science, but that's so. So there are things happening at the kind of, you know, formal leadership level. And then there are there are what I would call the mid-level, which are community leaders. And they're, they're a very powerful and oftentimes underutilized resources. So clergy journalists, coaches, teachers, people that have spheres of influence within their community, if they take seriously doing things in their work and in their sphere of influence to bring down tensions and to bring people together and to help communications, they can have a big influence over time, right? Um, So the leaders, you know, especially in these epicenters of division like Congress, they have things that they need to do and can do. These what I call mid-level leaders or influentials also can have quite a, an impact. And I want to plug, there's a movie that came out. It's a, do, it's a crime docuseries um, called The Abortion Talks. And it was made by a couple of filmmakers out of Cambridge. It's about these six, uh, pro, three pro-life, three pro-choice women that came together after a horrific shooting in Brookline, Boston, in, the, in 94. Um, and it's about the, if the effects of those women having the courage and the tenacity and the persistence to come together in dialogue, learn to understand each other, not, resol- you know, not resolve the issue of pro-life, pro-choice at all. In fact, they became more polarized in their attitudes, but they also became, came to respect and love each other. 
and, and learn to work together. And part of what they decided to do was reduce their rhetoric in their activism because they felt complicit in creating the conditions for violence. So they worked together to change that. That's, a, to me, a beautiful metaphor of what community leaders have the capacity to do, but it's really hard work. It often takes facilitation. <clears throat> and, and sometimes, frankly, it usually, usually takes a crisis, right? There was this horrible shooting. That's why these women came together. But ultimately, it had a, a po- very positive effect. The good news is we've got multiple crises. You know, <laughs> there's so many crises in this country. There's plenty, plenty of opportunities for that. So I want to say top leaders, mid-level leaders, and then all of us. There are great things that all of us can do. Part of it is also recognizing, like, where's the pain? You know, so, you know, one, so I'm going to, I'm going to make a pitch for something that we've created. You know, when I wrote this book, The Way Out, um, I realized nobody reads books anymore. <laughs> you know, so you know, great. That's great. You know, we, we offer practical advice for what people can do, but very few people read books. So then my group started to say, all right, so what, how, if I were going to like live this in my life every day, what would I do? Like, what do I do today for 10 minutes? It makes a difference. Right. And how do I build on that? So we, we put together what we call a challenge, which is a political courage challenge, we call it. And it's a, it's kind of like a series of exercises that we send you that you can do every day for you know four weeks, five weeks, six weeks. You can do it as long as you want. Um, we recommend strongly if you do it that you do it with somebody else, right? With a friend or family or community or work, you know, people at work, because it's good to be able to complain about it with people and to say this is so hard and I can't believe that ask me to do this stupid stuff. That's really important to the process. Um, but we piloted it this past summer with a group of 25 of my students and colleagues learned a ton and have put it up on a website now it's, and it's by, uh, it's, it's, it's on a website by a group called starts with us, which is, you know, doing various depolarization things, but they said, we'll build this website for you. And it's, and it's a simple website, but basically what it asks you to do is every day do something for at least five minutes and we give you things to do. And it's all based on the the kind of evidence-based science in this. These are principles of what helps, you know, communities escape toxic polarization. Um, But it it gives you a very simple thing to do. And the first thing I ask people to do is to sit down with a blank piece of paper and ask yourself, how is polarization affecting my life? Is it affecting me in any way? Am I estranged from some people that I used to talk to? Yes. Do I wake up immediately and look on my Twitter feed or look at the news and get triggered? Yes. You know, what, where are the pain points in my life where this is making me a little bit more anxious and alienated and isolated and, and hopeless, right? Being really clear about where you're messed up by this is, a, is an important place to start because then people are, are like, all right, maybe maybe it's worse than I thought. You know, maybe I should do give five or ten minutes a day and try to do something else. And then it offers you every day four or five options. Some are five minutes, some are longer, and says try any of these today. Um, and ideally, 
at the end of the week, you reach out to your friend or your colleague or your sister who you're doing this with, and you complain together. (laughs) Or you celebrate. You know, you might say, like, one of the things that we learned was needed was time. Nobody's got time. Nobody has, you know, people are like, I don't have five minutes. (laughs) So we said, okay, try this as an exercise. Turn this off for, for an hour. Turn off your phone, turn off your computer, don't watch any screens for an hour a day and try that. And it's hard to do, but the people that did it said it was Mm -hmm. the most profound thing I did because suddenly I was like sitting with thoughts and feelings that I'd never had before. Suddenly I had time to think and read and do things. So sometimes you have to, what they call subtract, you have to reduce the automatic stuff. And this is a good one to subtract. You don't have to, you know, have to throw it away. You don't have to quit forever, you know, but if you say, I'm going to not do this for an hour, it makes a difference. Um, and it ab- allows you. Um, so I, I would say that go to there um, starts with us is the organization that's built this website uh, and on it, on it is a link on the homepage is a link to the what we call finding the way out challenge. And it's this political courage challenge. And it's just something that you can go to every day, check it out, see, look at the options. Sometimes it's um, listen to the song and listen to the lyrics. And this is relevant to one of the principles. Um, but it's a way to introduce some, you know, nudges, some slight adjustments in how you think and feel and what you do and who you talk to and who you don't. And, and so, I, so we did this this summer in this small group, and I did it every day. And I was one of the complainers. You know? But one of the things I did was, um, you know, one of the principles of this is the power yeah. of physical movement when we get stuck in attitudes, when we get stuck in beliefs, when we get stuck in negativity and relationships, sometimes it helps to physically move, mm. get up and move. And ideally, if you can, going moving outside together, side by side with somebody from the other side. So I did that this summer. I have a, a neighbor of mine who I've known for a long time, family man, good person, but had we had grown really estranged in politics he was very far on the other side and some of the things he said i found off- offensive and so i really shut down so i emailed him this summer and said would you be willing to take a walk with me in the park for an hour and he said uh okay but why a walk why you know and he, and he he thought I was CIA. You know, I'm. You don't. Are you afraid of surveillance? Like what? You know, he was. He you know for good reasons. He was paranoid. This this you know liberal Columbia professor re- reached out, but we went for a walk, and it was a you know really important experience. I write about it in one of these Time Magazine uh, articles. I write about it in the beginning because it was hard. I was really anxious about doing it. And this is what I study and do. I'm a mediator, but yet I, this is personal. And I like was, had a really upset yeah. stomach, you know. but it was a really important experience um, that we're continuing. So it, it encourages you to do things that push you a little bit. Um, sometimes you're not ready. Don't do them. But if you build on them, you know, you build a muscle 
or a set of muscles that encourage you. That's what I would offer to your listening audience as individuals um, and as small groups, because again, ideally this works best if you do it with other people or, you know, in your, you know, in your religious community, in your neighborhood, a sports team, whoever, you know, wherever politics is a thing, it's good to begin to unpack it with other people and talk about it. So that's what we call the finding the way out challenge. It's on the starts with us website. Um, and, uh, you know, I invite people to give it a try and, and, um, you know, we're, we're, we're sharing this with a lot of different organizations that are interested in doing this. My, one of my fantasies is that we're going to do this with all the staffers of Congress, because I don't think Congress people are going to do this because it's, you know, but their young staffers might. And if they did, that could really help affect because they're going to become members of Congress, many of them, right? And they have influence. And so I'm trying to find those kinds of points of leverage of groups that I think would, would could benefit from something like this, um, you know, and, and, and then encourage them to make it their own. That's the thing is this book just gives you five scientific principles. Stop and reset before you do anything again. You know, move with others. Complicate your understanding and your feeling about things because we oversimplify prematurely. You know, it gives sort of five basic principles. And then, it, you know, we give you examples of exercises. But one of the great things that happened this summer was my group was a bunch of, you know, kind of precocious people. And one of and one of them was like, well, I know the principal has moved today, but I don't like any of these offerings. So what I'm going to do is call somebody who I know who's a hostage negotiator for mm. the New York City Police Department. And I'm going to go take a walk with him in Brooklyn on a hot day. And I'm going to say to him, how do you talk to people who are insane? Like, how do you reason with them? How do you connect with them? How is that possible? Right. And that's what he did. And it was great, you know, because he took the principle and then did what he felt would be helpful for him. That's the value of this. It's there's there are scientific principles that can be done in a hundred thousand different ways. So the question is, how do you do it? We're going to have the hopefully the Columbia undergraduate students look at what I offer and change it, do their version of these things because they may not want to do what you know they won't <laughs> like the songs I picked. <laughs> you know? So pick your own songs; they're relevant to this and reflect on. It. So that's my, my, that's my lowest level human one-to-one off. Super tangible. That's awesome. That's incredible. Good. Yeah. Thank you. I'm feeling like inspired. Like I want to do this myself. Good. (laughs) And share. Yeah. Great. I think these are some of the practical tools that we, yeah, we just need something that's plug and play. And I love what you're saying about making it your own too. And um, so, yeah, thank you so much. And let me say, this is these, you know, the reason we offered this is because this isn't a training, this isn't a PowerPoint, this isn't a TED Talk. Those things yeah. are not going to touch this problem. It's going to take us building new habits, new norms over time. And that takes some kind of commitment and people need to ease into it. So it's trying to offer something that isn't too demanding, you know, a ropes course for a week, but starts with you and your community, right? And, and, and you take it from there. 
Thank you so much. Sure. I'm so grateful for your time and for you joining us on the podcast. It's been really an honor. So thank you for the opportunity to learn from you and your work. That was such an amazing conversation. I feel like I've learned so much. Really appreciate and value his practical experience as well as his, um, you know, what he was saying about trying to bridge that gap between science and practice and just how necessary that is in the field of conflict resolution and peace building. And I'm also grateful to hear some of his personal background and how he got interested and involved Mm. in like resolution um, is really powerful and just, yeah, love that concept that there's something probably inherent within each of us to want to resolve conflict and yeah. And that we grow up in conflict. So it's, we can't escape that in our daily lives. And so um, I think something that really I was kind of focusing on as we're having this conversation was this concept of building relationships with those who think and believe differently from us. And of course, doing the challenge that Peter explained to us and hopefully like each of us can consider taking that on in our lives. Um, But then I think also going beyond the challenge to really try to build authentic relationships in the long term with those who have such um, different ideologies and, and political beliefs and religious mm. beliefs from us. And, you know, I was reflecting on um, the example that he shared from Boston about pro-life and pro-choice activists coming together to build relationships and how they grew over time to genuinely care for each other and love each other, even as like they became more firm in what they believed or what they thought through this process Um, and reflecting on how we can love others even in the midst of that disagreement and those different worldviews even. But I think I'm also thinking about this concept of, you know, power structures and how we can associate a lot of values with what we believe about different political issues or social issues and how it can be difficult because we might perceive that if somebody holds a certain belief, then that means that they, you know, X, Y, Z, like that means that you hate this group of people. That means that you don't care about this group of people or you don't care about this, you know, a systemic oppression that's taking place. And we can associate individuals with those larger um, like power inequalities or structural inequalities and conflicts in our society. So I think that's where it can become tricky because then we kind of assume that, um, you know, if you think this way or you hold this belief, then that connects to perhaps harm or something that's being done to certain people. And so, yeah, so I want to like acknowledge that and that that doesn't, um, yeah, like to build authentic relationships with people who believe differently from us doesn't equal like giving up our values or beliefs about these particular things. And I think that something else I'm processing is like, 
um, you know, for us to not, as a country, to not devolve further into like leading towards more conflict or civil conflict or, um, you know, we've seen examples of, of people using violence already in, in defense of political beliefs and um, that we don't want that to happen <laughs> more and more. And we want to prevent that type of, um, you know, conflict between fellow human beings. And so how can we still like reach out in genuine like love to those that believe differently from us, but also I, th- I think repairing those relationships that maybe have become broken as a result of political differences or social differences and in, in belief that how can we choose to still love in the midst of that? And then I can't help but think that like that is where some kind of transformation can take place or maybe like you know you do believe differently but perhaps through relationship like authentic relationship that might cause us to think differently I mean Mm -hmm. I've had plenty of friendships where you know I was very like strongly held on a particular belief and I know this goes against the Boston example but like that through friendships with others who think differently from me and like had a different worldview or had a different perspective, it did help me to open my mind and think, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm not right about this. Or maybe there's more to this issue or this story than I can, you know, contain all the knowledge for. And so I think a huge part of this too, that I feel like Peter talked about is just having that kind of openness to like, um, I don't know, to not be instantly offended or triggered when somebody says something that, that goes against what we think or what we believe. And to be able to like move past that, I think is something that is also a big aspect of this type of peacemaking and and reaching out to others, um, to build relationships is also like having a low, capacity for offense and being able to, um, yeah, to not take everything personally and to not feel like personally attacked. Um, and I'm guilty of all these things. Like (laughs) I don't want it to sound like, Oh yeah, like I have this figured out. I don't think any of us do. And Peter said the same thing. Like it's, it's a growing journey and it takes community and support as well. Um, but I do feel like there's something really key to this type of um, peacemaking that's into, like really important in our current context in the U.S. and what's happening in our country today. So, yeah. yes, yes, yeah, just aff- affirming everything you just said, and um, yeah, I mean, obviously, this is kind of the brunt of what peace catalyst does in our work and, um, kind of the, the things, the practices and the tools and the, um, super tangible disciplines that we, um, push, push really. (laughs) Um, but I think, so obviously there's a bias there thinking that, um, you know, this is something that's important and, um, should be prioritized, but I did really appreciate that, Dr. Coleman talked about kind of, you know, how do we, how do we do this? Like, what are some tangible, practical ways that we can engage with those who are, um, 
of a different ideolo- ideological perspective or um, wherever the, the conflict may um, exist. He talked a lot about, or towards the end of our conversation, he talked about collaboration and, um, you know, coming together and working on a particular project um, or, yeah, just just the the process of sharing, exchanging ideas, um, sharing skills and resources to do something together, that that in and of itself levels the playing field. Um, and, you know, I think if I'm remembering correctly, the example he gave, or one of the examples he gave, um, was, you know, a, just simply on the community level, a sports team, um, you know, that, that there's, there's just different, I think he, he talked about himself saying that, you know, if he, was on the field, you know, it wouldn't be Dr. Coleman with a PhD. It would, it's a different skill set, And so, um, yeah, I, I just think that there is something profound about that, um, about finding places where we can plug in at the community level and collaborate with people who, um, we wouldn't normally, our, our paths wouldn't normally cross maybe, um, and I think with that, just the power of being, proximate to those who we um, might disagree with or might even have intense conflict with. I mean, obviously there are degrees to all of this. So, you know, maybe it's not always safe, obviously, to interact with people who, um, if if there's such conflict, but, um, you know, I think I'm thinking more, um, I don't know, I guess I'm thinking less intense conflict, but um, yeah, just the power of being near those who um, we disagree with, because it's just so human to want to to physically separate, to physically distance, mm-hmm. um, and cluster with those who think like us and look like us and talk like us. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I think just the examples that he was giving there, um, that you know, this is something that countries um on a policy level implement like in Botswana and see the value in I I just thought that was fascinating and something that maybe us as Americans who you know are just speaking from knowing this culture and how we tend to think like that that's something that would really I would imagine be resisted because it's like don't tell me who to talk to and where to live and you know all of our freedoms um being infringed upon but I just thought that that idea um, that like, this is something that's recognized on a policy level in other countries. It's like, yeah, wow. I don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's good. That's so good. And it's like, yeah, it is fascinating how folks are like physically moving to other places. And I don't want to, like, I wouldn't want to diminish that feeling of being perhaps being a minority within a majority culture that is in opposition to what you think. And like, you know, we don't know the experiences those people have had being that minority. And so I don't want to like diminish those experiences. And yet at the same time, if that's the pattern of like you're saying physically, like it's so human, like you're saying, and also could be the result of painful experiences. And so don't want to diminish that at all. But at the same time, we can't allow ourselves to um, continue to be so polarized, like even at the physical level, because it does, I think, create 
um, more entrenched like divisions and otherizing and um, so yeah. Yeah. And blind spots. I just feel like every time I speak with somebody, whether it's a family member or, um, yeah, even read an article of written by someone who I I know I disagree with. I'm always like, oh yeah. Like, I guess when I, when I hear that perspective, I realize like I am operating, you know, I, you only know what you, you only know what you know. So I just, yeah, I, I feel like I'm always, um, it's just very revealing. It's always revealing and humbling and it can be upsetting certainly and can um, bring up some of those, you know, very uncomfortable emotions. But um, yeah, there, there's always a learn. Well, I guess I can't say always, but most often I would imagine there's a learning, um, there's a benefit from mm-hmm. being near those who um, we are divided. Totally. I I couldn't agree more. And I think there's something else I'm reflecting on is how these divisions are so like we feel them so acutely in our like family relationships and friendships. And there's this part of me that's like, how can we like be emboldened to fight back against that, like to fight against that desire or inclination or impulse to create further like disconnection with those relationships in particular. Cause I think even like, yeah, like how can we, (laughs) I don't know. It sounds weird to say it like that, but to like fight back against that sort of like interpersonal, like division or conflict that really feels like it's being manipulated to some extent by these Mm -hmm. larger forces of, politics and the systems that we live in. Um, if that makes sense, (laughs) I think, um, yeah, especially as like, if we're following, you know, following Jesus, but not just Christians, like everybody, but having that ethic of like forgiveness and loving path, like seeing beyond these things and, um, yeah. And just common humanity in general. So, Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that is a helpful perspective. Absolutely. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more info about Peace Catalyst and to help support our peacebuilding work, please visit our website at peacecatalyst.org. Thanks, everyone. Bye.